Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why do monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant and Chris Smith. Good evening, Chris. Hello, Sue. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm, I'm a bit tired because, of course, this week it's been a big week for anyone who works in virus research and virus science because of what's happening with the flu yes, and swine flu from Mexico. There is so much going on, and I'm sure people are going to um, ask some questions. Any symptom anybody gets is like either sore throat or something, thinking, oh, no, but um, it is quite worrying. Yes, I think probably people are right to be concerned, but we have to remember that in this country... There's no evidence that at the moment we have onward transmission of cases and there's no evidence also that uh, we've got a massive pandemic on our hands yet anyway. And also, you have to be remember that many Western countries have been worrying about this for a really long time and so we're pretty well prepared. And what that means is that we're very good and we have a very good network of laboratories set up diagnosing and picking up this in the community. And also we've got plans in place for how to deal with people in hospital and also drugs and in a few months' time, there'll also almost certainly be a vaccine for this too. So I think now's the time to be optimistic, not too worried. Good. Well, let's start off with some questions then. Um, first of all, Leanne has called in. She says, what is gangrene and what are the first outward signs? Chris? Well, gangrene is literally death of tissue. It's tissue which goes rotten. And the usual reason this happens is because, for some reason, a uh, supply of blood has, got, has been cut off to an area of the body. Now, this can happen for a number of reasons. The most common example is uh, if you get, for example, a frostbite and your blood vessels then clamp down to prevent heat loss from your body, tissue is starved of blood supply and oxygen, the tissue dies, and it then begins to rot and uh, can become infected. So that's one type of gangrene. Another reason why you might have a lack of blood supply to the body is if you have uh, a vascular disease, if you have, for instance, arterial disease, and a common cause of that is smoking too many cigarettes, uh, having diabetes, having high cholesterol, having a bad diet, just being prone to it, being male, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong sex. But oh having furred up blood vessels uh, also means that tissue can get uh, um, starved of oxygen, and again, this causes necrosis, and then you can begin to get damage to the tissue, and the tissue dies and begins to rot away. That's gangrene again. And then there are other reasons why you can get gangrene because if you get damage or injury to tissue, then microorganisms can get in and they can begin to grow in the wound site 
and they will then cause a certain type of gangrene, and the type I'm thinking of is gas gangrene, and this was common in the trenches, but does crop up from time to time. There's an organism called Clostridium perfringens, and Clostridium perfringens is an anaerobic organism. It doesn't like oxygen, and if it gets into a wound, it can cause this spreading wet gangrene, which produces quite a lot of gaseous products when the bacteria eat your tissue under the skin. And this causes the build-up of gas under the skin, and so you can get this horrible kind of bubbling effect in the skin. And this is very often fatal, and people saw a lot of cases like this in people who had nasty wounds in the First World War. So there are several kinds of gangrene, and they can be wet or dry, and they can be caused by a variety of reasons. They're all nasty. Dr Chris Allen has called in. He says, as we live in England, the north side of the trees never get any sun, so there is a build-up of moss. Uh, with this in mind, what's the situation on the equator and in the southern hemisphere? Moss is wicked stuff, isn't it? Dr Chris, what do you reckon? Well, he's right that moss likes a nice, moist, not too, not too bright environment which would dry it out. So it tends to be the north-facing surfaces of trees which have more moss and you also see more lichens and things like that which are going to go for the same sort of environment for the same reason. And the south side of the tree, which is likely to get a bit more sun and be warmer, tends to get less moss growing on it. That's true for the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, where you would expect the reverse to be true, it partially is, but then no rule is absolute because, of course, you have to remember that if you've got a tree growing in a forest with lots of other trees around it, then there's not going to be a sunny side and a dark side to the trunk, even though one side will be north and one side will be south. And so in those kind of situations, you'd expect both sides of the trees to be equally attractive for growing moss. So you can use this sort of rule of mossy thumb to tell you what's north and what's south in relevant hemispheres when you're talking about the isolated tree or the odd roof here and there. But once you're into a forest, it's much more patchy. And so you couldn't really use that to, 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 in a very clear way, I'm afraid. But it, it's sort of true. I like that, the mossy rule of thumb. <laughs> Good one. All right, let's uh, press on with some more questions. Christina in Hadley says, Hi, Chris and Sue, I've got an underactive thyroid. Recently got a book from the library and read that certain things that I love to eat can end up not being good for this condition. Does this mean I can still eat these things in moderation or do I have to cut them out of my diet completely? Well, I hope she's not thinking about chocolate. What do you say, Chris? I'd like to know what the things are that she's being told she shouldn't eat because, to my knowledge, the only thing that you can do that's bad from a dietary point of view if you've got a thyroid risk is not to have enough thyroxine or enough iodine in your diet in order to make thyroxine. The thyroid is a big gland in your neck. It's about the size of a walnut. It's got two lobes to it, about the size of the end of your thumb, each of them, and there's a narrow connection between the two of them. And the thyroid gland takes iodine from your diet and it turns it into what's called triiodothyronine. And this is thyroxine. And this is the body's thermostatic slash metabolic rate determining hormone. So a chemical comes out of the brain called TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone. It goes to the thyroid, it turns up or down the activity of the thyroid gland, which produces thyroxine, and the thyroxine then goes in the bloodstream, bound to a protein which carries it round to all of your cells, and then it goes into every single cell in the body, and thyroxine is the one example of a hormone which binds directly onto your DNA, it binds to the DNA itself, and activates genes. 
and it turns up or down the activity of different combinations of genes in each of your cells and thereby controls the metabolic rate of that cell and therefore the entire metabolic rate of your entire body. And some people get conditions where the thyroid gland either produces too much thyroxine or too little thyroxine. Mm. A common cause of too little thyroxine historically, and this was very common in Derbyshire and gave rise to a condition called Derbyshire neck, mm. was that people who didn't have enough iodine in their diet, and the reason that Derbyshire was important is it's very far inland and we get a lot of iodine from things that come out of the sea because the sea's got lots of iodide in it and mm. so if you, eat sea, if you have things from the sea and you add sea salt to your food... You are protected. People in Derbyshire didn't have that access to iodine and they got goiter. This is where the thyroid gland gets bigger in order to try and become more efficient and compensate for the lack of thyroxine that's going around in the blood. So, therefore, having too little iodine in your diet can be a problem for uh, people who um, might be at risk of getting that and you might get a big thyroid. Thankfully, these days, because food and table salt and everything else is fortified with iodine, we don't see those kind of problems anymore. But it was once a very big problem, people having Derbyshire neck. The other possibility is that you can get a thyroid that's too active, and this is a, com a consequence often of um, a growth in the thyroid. It can be either benign, more commonly, or malignant, sometimes, more rarely. You can get a cancer that produces thyroxine. And this means that you then produce far too much thyroxine and you get the symptoms of hyperthyroidism. Sometimes it can also be caused by the immune system triggering the thyroid because you can produce an antibody that looks a bit like the hormone that turns on the thyroid gland and that stimulates your thyroid more than it should. And sometimes some people, because of this immune attack on the thyroid, their thyroid can initially give too much thyroxine and then after a long time it starts to produce too little and you get an underactive thyroid. And if you get an underactive thyroid, the easy way to treat that is to take the drug thyroxine in a tablet. And this is very well tolerated and it's very easy to get the dose right because you can just do a measure on the, the hormone that controls the, thyro the thyroid gland, see if the level is too high, too low or just about right and you tailor the dose accordingly. And you also ask the person, how do you feel? And under those circumstances, you can control it very well. So it's one of those conditions that has devastating symptoms if you don't treat it very easy to diagnose and these days thanks to good drugs and good doctors we can treat it and control it very well hmm. now lizzie nipswich says that she has arthritis in her foot and has been prescribed uh, diclofenic sodium i hope i've said that right um she's been taking them now for well over three weeks and it hasn't taken down the swelling and it's very painful are there any other options she's sounding desperate chris what do you say hmm. when things don't respond to simple remedies and things like simple analgesics and pain relief like diclofenac, when they don't work, then it suggests that you need to go and see somebody, um, go and see the doctor again to make sure that something isn't being missed or to find out whether something stronger is necessary. There might be another reason why that joint has got a, a big problem. There may even be a broken bone. Um, there may be an infection. There may be a number of reasons why that joint hasn't improved and why it's still swollen. There could be something else that's happened entirely. For instance, someone might have had a sore foot, so they don't walk around on it so much. They put their leg up and don't, and don't move it too much, and as a result, they can get a blood clot in a vein, and this can cause the leg to swell, making you think maybe the joint is causing the swelling, but in fact it's the, the blood clot. And so it's very important to get this checked out. Um, there is a whole range of reasons why it might be something trivial, but it might uh, be worth getting it checked just in case.
Sure. I mean, sometimes you don't know how long, really, to, to wait before something doesn't happen. I mean, drugs these days, they are quite quick acting, aren't they? How long should we wait before, you know, if taking anything and, and we don't feel some relief? Well, it depends on the condition, of mm. course. If this is a, a new onset problem, which has suddenly appeared and you take a drug to try and make it better, unless you know what the diagnosis is, then you can't expect the drug to work. Whereas if this is a long-standing problem with arthritis and you know that it aches a bit in the morning and it's stiff, or if you work, work and walk a lot during the day and it gets painful towards the end of the day and you take some drug and it normally feels better, and this is a departure from that normal pattern, clearly something's changed and it probably warrants getting looked at. If you're enjoying Ask the Naked Scientist, then you might like to check out The Naked Scientist, our regular roundup of the world's best science. Each week we take a look at the latest science news, talk to top researchers working at the coalface of discovery, and also get our hands dirty with a science experiment that you can join in with too. So make it a date and prepare to strip down science on the web at nakedscientist.com slash podcast. It's time to say good evening to Tony. Hello, Tony. Good evening, Sue. It's lovely to hear from you. And you. Missed you. Um, you're through to Dr. Chris. What's your question, Tony? Well, um, really, I was thinking about heart. It's rather strange that um, the heart seems to... Nothing controls it. Your brain doesn't control it. You know, is it electricity that controls it? Basically, how does it work, Doctor? Hi, Tony. Hello. Well... Actually, you made a slight mistake there because your nervous system can control your heart. And the best example of this is when you get nervous, you notice that you have palpitations, you notice that your heart is thudding away in your chest. You haven't moved. You can be sitting in your chair, you can be doing no exercise, but your heart rate and also your blood pressure will go up. Uh-huh. And that's because your brain, which is controlling your mood, your degree of excitability and your arousal, is connected via a nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, to your heart. It's also connected to your adrenal glands, which are on top of your kidneys, and they produce adrenaline, which goes into the bloodstream, and that also affects the heart. So you can control your heart rate, and the the sympathetic nervous system does make your heart beat harder and beat faster when it needs to, when you're excited. So you can use your brain to both increase and decrease your heart rate by controlling the inputs to the heart of those various hormones and those levels of um, nerve activity. But actually, the interesting thing about the heart is that the beat of the heart is what's called myogenic. It comes from the heart itself. And if you take a heart out of somebody, so it's got no nerve connections and there's no hormones in the blood going to it, you can put that heart in a dish in a solution called Ringer's solution, which has got all of the nutrients, it's got oxygen and sugar and everything the heart needs, and the heart cells will continue to beat of their own accord. And this intrigued scientists for a long time, but in recent years we've understood why this happens, and this is because the heart cells have tiny pores on their surfaces, these are called iron channels, and the cells let in, like a, a leaky boat, small amounts of the chemical sodium. So the sodium leaks into the cell, and as it does so, it makes the cell get a bit excited, and all of a sudden the cell reaches a certain level of excitation where it fires a beat. And the cell beats, it contracts, and then a whole load of another chemical, potassium, floods out of the cell, making the cell get less excited again, the cell relaxes, and then the process begins again. And you can 
watch this happening again and again and again and because the heart cells are all connected to each other electrically because the cells also have connections between them little holes in their membranes called gap junctions when one cell gets excited it tells the cells next door to get excited and that's how the the beat partly spreads around the heart there's also another kind of conducting system that helps heartbeat get ferried around but that's how you basically get a com uh, a uniform uh, contraction of the heart muscle and when the nervous system says I now want you to beat faster what ha is happening is that the sympathetic nerves make those sodium channels that let the sodium into the cells it lets them open those things a bit more so a bit more sodium and another chemical calcium which excite cells can get in a bit quicker and therefore the cells depolarize they want to beat more often and therefore the speed the speed of contraction and the rate of contraction goes up and that's why your heartbeat goes up. Oh, that's very, very interesting. What about the pacemaker then? Does that keep it steady, doesn't it, Doctor? But, I mean, that's electrical current, isn't it? Well, your heart has its own pacemaker, and what's happening there is that a certain cluster of nerve cells, which are in the top of the one of the atria, one of the other chambers at the top of the heart, the top of your right atrium, oh. there's a bundle of nerve cells, well, there's a bundle of heart cells there, which are beating at about 60 to 70 beats per minute so uh -huh. they're they're discharging slightly faster than the heart muscle elsewhere on the heart and so they basically capture the rest of the cells in the heart and they make them follow suit so they're the conductor they're beating time and the rest of the heart because they beat first the rest of the heart cells follow suit um, but if you stop the, the heart's own pacemaker working then the heart will go to its own normal rhythm which is about 30 to 40 beats per minute which is the rate that the rest of the cells in the heart wants to discharge and beat at. But if your pacemaker goes wrong, which can happen for a number of reasons, and one reason, for instance, is if you have a heart attack or you have damage to the blood supply to the heart, then if that conducting system or the pacemaker cells themselves are damaged, then the heart can go too slow, and this can mean that people get the symptoms of heart failure. And under those circumstances, you can restore normal heartbeat with a pacemaker, and what happens there is that doctors will implant a device which has a, a, an electrical supply inside it. The pacemaker charges up a capacitor and it then periodically discharges that capacitor via a number of fine wires which are threaded down through a vein underneath your collarbone into the heart and the electricity is then fed into the wall of the heart where it triggers the heart to then fire off and discharge as though its own pacemaker was doing that. And so you can get the heart to beat at the right rhythm again. It gives you a regular rhythm and the heart goes at the right rate. And this means that people then don't get symptoms of heart failure the way that uh, you might do if you didn't have that device there. All right. Thank you. Interesting stuff. Thank you, Tony. Take care. Bless you. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Now then, hold on to your horses. We have a question on the email. Dr. Chris, I'm concerned about this. Uh, Neil has uh, sent me an email to say that he recently ran the London Marathon. Brilliant, Neil. Well done to you. He says, unfortunately, I got a very painful jogger's nipple and I am left with two scabs on either side of my chest. Will my nipples grow back? Ouch. That Ooh. sounds awful. Sounds Chris. very painful. I've had that, actually, but not, not as severe as, as Neil's nipple case. Uh, nasty and what happens there is that because your nipples are very sensitive I speak for myself but I'm sure other people can identify with me uh, they are sensitive and because they're not used to your clothes rubbing up and down on them that much obviously you move around during the day but there's not this regular abrasive chafing across your nipples by say a running or jogging shirt uh, the skin on them isn't very tough 
So if you then run the marathon and you're jogging, and of course the, the chest is rising and falling with breathing, also your weight is shifting as you take each step, then what happens is that relative to your shirt, your nipples move up and down a little bit, and this is a bit like uh, rubbing your fingers up and down on sandpaper many, many times, and eventually they begin to ulcerate and they get very, very sore. Uh, you can pick it up normally if, if it begins to happen and, uh, and you think, all oh, that's sore and put two plasters on there and I've seen some people do that. But if you don't have the opportunity to stop and put plasters on your nipples, then you have to carry on, uh, presumably as Neil did. And I've seen some people with actually streaks of blood coming down their shirt because of uh, their nipples getting so sore. And the good news is that it's mainly superficial injury. It's the surface of the skin that's got sore and it should just heal up fine. I don't think there'll be any permanent anatomical damage, Neil. But next time you might want to put nipple protectors on and uh, just put some of those round plasters over them and that will stop them getting sore in future. Um, or you could wear a bra, of course. That'd be the other way of doing it, wouldn't it? Well, yeah, I guess so. Look after yourself, Neil. I just can't... <laughs> put, oh, that's made my teeth go on edge, I must say. Next, let's go to uh, Mike in Colchester. He says, why do we have different languages? I understand in the case of different islands, but when you look at the vast amount of neighbouring countries in Europe, why is there not one language? To go further than this, why was there never one universal language? Good question, Mike. What do you say? I think it's probably a vestige of our history which is that obviously when mankind first got invented, I say invented, about 150,000 years ago, the modern human appeared in Africa. And about 55,000 years ago, they started to move out of Africa. Actually, mankind's Garden of Eden is somewhere in Ethiopia, we think. And people then began to move out of Africa and, and disappear across the rest of the world. There would have been very small numbers of modern humans and they were hunter-gatherers, so we would have lived in small groups who would have got close together and stayed as small societies. And then we would have formed bigger societies and eventually we had towns and things and people would have lived together in a social environment. And it was that allegiance to your clan, it was that allegiance to your group that meant that people started to communicate well within their group, but they were fearful they distrusted other mm -hmm. tribes because they might have tried to steal things from them. Mm -hmm. And so for that reason, if you spoke the same language, you knew whether someone was a friend or a foe. Mm. So it was a good way of identifying who your clansmen were, who your mates were, and therefore you could have that in common versus people who didn't speak the same language as you. Therefore, they couldn't understand you, so therefore you were more likely to win in a war against them and vice versa. So I think that's part of it, that because people were A, isolated, and B, living socially in groups that tended to communicate within their own group, that's how languages initially got, got going. Um, because once people began to form countries of their own, they didn't want to talk to other people, they wanted to be their own group. And so as a result... The, 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 the way they were using to communicate with each other developed and evolved and became the modern language we have today in, in each of those countries. And I think that's probably the reason. Wow, fascinating. Now, uh, Carlos has says, um, hi, Professor, what's the difference between a capstan and a stevedore? Um, they are something to do with ships. How's your um, marine experience, Chris? Um, I don't know what a stevedore is, but a capstan is something in which you would insert lots of pieces of wood because if you want to lift a heavy object then the first thing you do is to put it onto a, some kind of pulley because if you just expect men to pull a heavy object and lift up something heavy you need some way of, of getting more leverage on that object and also making it so it's safe so that uh, it's not going to, if someone lets go, 
pull lots of people overboard or undo all the good work you've done just lifting something up. So a capstan is like a turntable, and the top of the turntable has a series of holes in which you can insert very strong pieces of wooden shaft, and then everyone can line up around the capstan uh, holding one of the pieces of wood and push, and this turns the turntable. It's like a, a pin which will then turn. And if you wrap a rope around that, you can have someone holding the rope and pulling it as it comes in, and then most of the force as people turn the capstan is transferred to the capstan so that then you can, for instance, lift a very heavy anchor that way. Mm. I don't know what a stevedore is, though, so don't know if anyone can help me out with that one. I thought I knew a bit about sailing, but obviously not enough. Yeah, well, you know most things, Chris, which is the great thing. Uh, let's uh, go to Dot now. She says, three months ago she had an aneurysm clipped in her brain. The after effects have been horrendous. How long do they last? Oh, Dot, you're very lucky, but let's see what Chris can tell you. Chris? Well, unfortunately, you don't go into the details of what the after effects are, so it's hard for me to really comment on this one, but I can talk generally about what happens when someone has an aneurysm. An aneurysm is an outpouching or a bulge in an artery. And aneurysms can either be saccular, in other words, you get a bulge out the side of the artery, or they can be concentric, so the whole artery just stretches and becomes too big. And the reason they're dangerous is because as they get bigger, the amount of tension in the wall gets bigger, and eventually they can burst. And this means that you have then blood coursing out of this hole in the artery into whatever structure the artery is supplying. Now, if that's your aorta, you can have a ruptured abdominal aorta, and because the aorta is a massive blood vessel, you can bleed almost all of your circulating volume out in a matter of seconds, if not just minutes. And as a result of that, um, people can die. If this happens in the brain, inside your skull, then obviously you can have a stroke. But more worryingly, because the brain is in a sealed cavity, your skull is a sealed hole, um, if you put blood into there at high pressure, then it squashes on the brain because the tissue's got nowhere to go. There's no way for expansion to occur because the skull is in the way. So this can apply pressure to the brain and cause damage. So it's very important that if people pick up, they have an aneurysm, that it gets treated before it pops because it can have quite serious consequences. The way that they get diagnosed is often that people present with some kind of consequence of having a bulging blood vessel. It might be that it presses on something. It might be that it presses on a nerve and causes, for instance, a, a problem with control of an eye, which is a, a common cause. It might cause a painful problem with one of the eyes if there's a, a, an aneurysm on one of the brain's blood vessels. It can also cause headaches because you can get high pressure inside your head. It might be that people have many little strokes... TIAs, for example, which are a sign that something is wrong. And doctors can then do various investigations to study the structure of blood vessels supplying the brain. And when they do that, you can then spot these abnormalities and then you can decide how to treat them. There's two ways. One way is that you can clip them off. So uh, you, try, you go in via whatever route so you can see the blood vessel and you then put a tight clip around the base of the aneurysm which pinches it off and stops the blood going in there, and that means that any blood in the aneurysm just forms a stable clot, and the rest of the blood just goes straight past in the artery without interrupting the flow. The other way of doing it, which is better if you've got an aneurysm which is hard to get at, is via a wire. And what doctors will do is to thread a cable in, or a little, little cannula in through, usually the big vessel in the leg, or through the neck, and you go up through the artery, and you thread this wire so that the end of the wire gets into this aneurysm and feed in a coil of wire which coils up, tangling round on itself inside the aneurysm. And this causes the aneurysm to form a big blood clot inside the aneurysm, 
blocking it, so it then forms a stable, solid blood thrombus. And no more blood goes in there, the rest of the blood goes straight past, and eventually what happens is that it just closes off the neck of the aneurysm and you get a, a new kind of internal layer of the inner surface of the blood vessel growing over the neck. So it just closes it off and it makes it safe. And both of these are very effective and they're safe ways to stop the potential threat of, of these things rupturing because if they do rupture, then the consequences can often be fatal. So it's really good to diagnose them, it's really good to treat them because otherwise they can be very serious. Mm. Oh dear, that sounds very nice too. Dot was uh, very lucky in that case then. Now, Brian in Chelmsford has said, you're spot on, Dr Chris. A capstan is a form of winch and a stevedore is a dock worker. So well done you. <laughs> so that's oh, what I got we the stevedore know. wrong, didn't I? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, that's the difference the, though. <laughs> the key, the clue was in the door bit. It's like matador, <laughs> I suppose. The stevedore, I hadn't heard that term though, stevedore. so thank you for that. But I'm glad I got the shippy bit right. Yeah, we've I've learnt. never worked in a dock, but I have worked on a ship, so I suppose I should have known that. Yeah, we've learnt something. Now, um, last one then uh, Michelle says that uh, we get spots on our faces but sometimes we get them on our bottoms why is that well a spot is when a sweat gland and an, one, in other words what we call a pore on the skin gets blocked and bacteria which are in that gland then begin to grow and they multiply and they start to produce various inflammatory substances which then cause damage to the tissue inside the sweat gland and in the pore, and this attracts the immune system, which rushes in and starts to produce even more inflammatory chemicals, and this in turn then causes the whole thing to get swollen and painful and red, and it forms a spot. And sometimes when you get a build-up of the chemicals in there, they then pop out as pus. That's the dead white blood cells that have rushed in to sort out the bacteria. And pretty much any surface of your body which has got these pores on the skin, they might be hair follicles where hair comes through, they can get infected and if they get blocked. And so that can happen pretty much anywhere. It turns out that your face is more common because you produce quite a lot of sort of oils on your face. Um, I think the face is one of the highest bacterial carriage areas of the body. If you swab people's faces on certain parts of the face, you can find 10 to the 8, that's 100 million microbes per square centimetre. So very high densities of microorganisms living on the face. So the chances of getting them into blocked up glands is, is quite high. So tends to happen also when people have got lots of testosterone. So more common in boys than girls and also when hormone levels are high, uh, especially during puberty and, and also in some women who are taking certain drugs to control their hormone levels, including uh, certain forms of the pill, that can uh, make it worse. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. <laughs> <laughs>